Hello and welcome to Disseminate, the Computer Science Research Podcast. I'm your host, Jack Wardby. Today, I'm delighted to say I'm joined by Semi Sally Hollow, who will be talking about a new graph database management system, Kuzu. Semi is an associate professor at the University of Waterloo and is also the current holder of the David R. Sheraton Faculty Fellowship. Welcome to the show, Semi. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Great stuff. Well, let's jump straight in then. So maybe you can tell us a little bit more about yourself and how you became interested in, in researching databases. Yeah, your, your story so far. I see. Good. Well, okay. So you, you, you should interrupt me because I, I could I could go on long, long here. <laughs> so I, I, I got introduced to uh, data, data management back in undergrad when I took the, the introduction course. And it was given by, I, I went to Yale as an undergrad and it was, it was given by Avi Silbershot. So Avi is very well known in the field and he is actually the author of one of the main books. Well, the book, the, the, the course was overall, I thought very boring. Actually, we have a problem as a field to teach that course in an interesting way. I find that very challenging to myself to engage students because a lot of people know of SQL and then and, and sort of core database technology. But Avi had a way of explaining a lot of stories because he was very well integrated with the industry. So he had led the AT&T labs for a long time and he had very close connections at Google. So he would inspire us a lot with these major challenges in data management. So that's where it started. Uh, but I did my senior thesis in networks. I was always systems a bit systems oriented, uh, maybe a bit more theoretical bent, but picking topics from systems. Um, anyway, so I, I did have a three years uh, um, industry experience before starting my PhD. And when I applied to PhD, I applied as a, broadly as systems, not necessarily just data management. It was networks or, or data management. And when I went there, um, I had a few sort of rotations with people. And uh, believe it or not, I ended up in a very, very different field. I ended up in DNA computing, nothing to do with systems, nothing to do with data management whatsoever. But that lasted for about a year and a half. And towards the end of my second year, I came back to where I felt more comfortable, aligned with uh, Jennifer Widom, who was my PhD advisor. And um, yeah, so that's how I sort of ended up doing a PhD in, in graph analytics, not really data management. It was it was the Hadoop MapReduce era and systems like Sparks were coming out and everybody was trying to do some distributed sort of uh, data management, data processing. And I picked the gra- graph vertical because I just read this Pragel paper back in the day. We could, we could get into that if, if you're interested. And then, so that was basically my PhD. And then when I took my position at University of Waterloo, I wanted to do something a bit more in, in data management. And uh, there was a wave around graph, property graph data management with Neo4j. And yeah, I wanted to, I wanted to get into the space. And you know, that's, that's, that's what I've been doing for the last seven, eight years. Yeah, and the rest is history, I guess, yeah. Yeah, the rest is history. <laughs> Fantastic. So yeah, graph databases then. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. Um, so maybe before we start talking about Kuzu, maybe we could, for the, for the for the uninitiated, maybe you could tell us a little bit more about graph databases, the background, kind of what they are, what they're used for, and how they differ from relational databases. Yeah. So uh, I'll, I'll actually unashamedly put a plug for a blog post that I wrote that really articulates my opinions in this field um, in more detail than I'll, I'll probably be able to do right now because uh, of time limits. Uh, but there's a 
um, blog post that I put, uh, that I wrote on Kuzu's website uh, called What Every Competent Graph Database Management System Should Do, where I also go into the history of graph database management systems. So, um, so graph database management systems, you know, the, the term might mean several different things. So nowadays, a lot of the time, people just think of systems like Neo4j because that's a, a essentially the current most popular model is what's called property graph database model and neo4j really is kind of pioneered that and and and, and popularized this uh, but systems based on graph structured data as a, as a data modeling choice graphs have been even existed even before relational systems so the very first database management system in history was based on a data model called the network model a network is just another term for a graph. So it was essentially a way you would represent uh, your records and you would link them to each, each other, just like you link nodes uh, through each other in, in the current property graph database manager. So that's even in early 60s, you know, before the field, as the field was emerging, uh, there were systems we could call graph database management systems. So, and every wave has essentially seen to some to different, you know, levels of success, some database management systems that have been adopting a graph-based model instead of the, the, the at this point, the, the de facto uh, tabular model, or, 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 or we could refer to them as uh, as relational model. So that came in the 60s, the first systems in relational systems were built in the 80s. And again, 80s, 90s, 2000s, there was always systems, database management systems built on a graph model, like, you know, XML, RDF, now, you know, property graph database management, object-oriented systems. So what should I say about them in the, in, in, the, in the current era? So graph database management systems, you know, they adopt a graph model where instead of representing your records as a set of tables, you represent them as a set of nodes and connections or relationships between your set of nodes. And in the property graph data model, you can also add some properties, key value properties on your nodes and edges. Ultimately, the, the query language comes, it's a high level query language, uh, just like SQL, and it's very much like SQL. So Cypher is the one that Kuzu implements, Neo4j, it's Neo4j's uh, language. You know, if we try to follow the open open cipher, but you know, other systems to around that adopt the property graph model, they have high level languages that are very much SQL like, and it's not very surprising because that, that's in the end, the core principles of how data is managed at a sort of database management system that is always relational, uh, in the sense that the, there's only one way that humans know how to develop declarative languages, and that's really to compile them down to relational operators that process sets of tuples, output sets of tuples. Uh, so at, at their core, just like any other database management system ever built in history, they're all, uh, in, in a sense, relational at that, at that sense. But the data model in the query language has these graph-specific uh, syntax or, or graph-specific graph features, uh, which makes it suitable for several classes of applications, in particular, so like fraud and uh, recommendations. Whenever you want to do uh, essentially some recursive computations, I think they're much better than uh, relational systems. It to program because they have these special syntax where you can say, you know, I want to find connections between this record and that record, and you may have represent them as nodes. And that's very intuitive in, 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 in a graph model. You're essentially looking for paths. So paths is, for example, a very first-class citizen notion, which doesn't exist in tables, and you need to think of join paths and whatnot, which is not very intuitive. So there's a mismatch there. So 
Now, there's other classes, uh, sets of features that they uh, provide, and I go into all of these uh, in, in, in my blog post. And uh, But overall, essentially, the two things to really remember is that it's an alternative data model with a SQL-like language with alternative syntax. And uh, I actually think, you know, people should just know alternatives to data management beyond SQL just because there's never going to be a perfect fit database management system. And every system, you know, every application has its more natural way of modeling it and asking queries and different systems are going to be more, more suitable. On that then, so um, Kuzu, give us the elevated pitch for Kuzu and can, and maybe tell us where the name comes from as well. So Kuzu, uh, um, the elevator pitch for Kuzu is the Kuzu is the aims to be the DuckDB is the DuckDB for graphs, and not right now for a lot of people that means something very specific because DuckDB is very very popular and successful system. Uh, it is a modern graph database management system built with state of the art principles of how um, essentially general analytics oriented or, or query oriented I should say uh, data based management systems should be built. And it uh, follows the usability features of DuckDB. It's embeddable just like DuckDB and aims to connect very well with sort of a set of uh, higher level uh, analytics libraries, specifically graph analytics libraries that users might use aside from uh, the, the database uh, database engine. So, you know, one way to think about uh, this is that we'd like to be default storage of database management storage for people who would like to model their data as a set of node and relationship records, but they'll do maybe some high level, uh, more advanced analytics, like maybe they'll want to build a graph machine learning model over those records. And they'll need to do lots of things before they could essentially tailor their records into the format that these higher libraries want. And, you know, we'd like to essentially facilitate that. Uh, aside from that, for the classic, classic applications of graph database management systems, so if you just need the graph database management system for your application, uh, we want to offer a lot of value by being a state-of-the-art system in the sense that, you know, we've done a lot of work on, on on graph database management systems and query processing and 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 scalability in particular, uh, so all of those features are getting integrated into Kuzu. So and that's also what DuckDB does. DuckDB also for the tabular analytics integrates uh, state of the art techniques, plus integrates very well with these higher level uh, the tabular analytics libraries like NumPy, etc. And we want to we're kind of trying to trying to replicate that. Awesome. So let's um, go into the architecture a little bit more of Kuzu. So you said it's, it tries to bring in all of these state-of-the-art components and the latest research into the system. So maybe you can tell us about the high-level picture of it and maybe yeah, we'll walk through it component at a time. Then. And, Sounds good. Yeah. So it's uh, the high-level sort of principles of how database management systems are implemented is very well known. Like every system pretty much goes through similar sets of phases when they take a text query and uh, in the end, execute a, a the, the query with with uh, some executable code. So basically, we have a, a parser binder, uh, etc., to compile the text query into some in-memory representation. Uh, we have an initial join optimizer that actually, you know, we, we're a little different from some systems that our initial join optimizer uh, takes the initial representation of the query and optimizes uh, and gives the gives a logical plan that optimizes the joins that will happen in the, in, in the query. And then we have an optimizer that takes that logical plan and does a 
sort of a lot of uh, standard optimization techniques like filter pushdowns, removing of projections, removing of unnecessary properties slash columns in, in relational terms, several normalizations, so on and so forth. And then uh, that's mapped into a physical plan. And then physical plan is given to a task scheduler, which executes. So that's the high level sort of journey as as it's the journey in postgres as it's the journey in i'm sure neo4j or duckdb so so that high level thing is uh, pretty standard so i should maybe just to start talking about the query processor because that's where we have done most work uh, so kuzu is essentially the successor of a previous system called graphflowdb uh, so GraphFlow started in 2017 and, and the motivation for GraphFlow was, uh, and when I entered uh, essentially this field of graph database management system, um, I had felt that back in my PhD, I'd made a big mistake by not understanding how the software that I was using was, uh, that I was spending my years on doing a PhD was used. So I worked on these distributed MapReduce-like systems called uh, Pregel was the original system from Google. The, the version that I have was called GPS and uh, the, the open source clone of Pregel was something called Apache Giraffe. It's still out there, I think, but I, I doubt it has any uh, in, any users. Um, so I did my PhD on that, but I, I, I'd never really sort of understood uh, the user base and understood um, how big, how impactful work in that space could be. I know. So in, in general, if you want your research to be impactful, you need, need to bet that that the software that you're working on, at least in, in data management, at least, we all work on uh, some data management or some data processing software. You need to bet that that's going to be successful, that you know that's going to live, there'll be lots of applications using it, it'll be popular to some extent. And I not done any of that work, I just blindly went into it. And by the time I was graduating, it had become clear to me that really there were no users of Giraffe or Pregel or GPS, those kinds of systems. I didn't want to make that mistake. At the same time, in 2015-16, um, Mike Stonebreaker won the Turing Award and had this Turing lecture where he talked about the importance of sort of talking to users throughout his career. Um, you know, obviously, he represents a, an ex, a, you know one style of research where he advocates that the true validator of good and bad ideas is the market not reviews or academics. And so I did this user survey. I was able to convince my PhD student Siddhartha to really lead this. It was actually a lot of boring work to try to do. Uh, if you're a systems-oriented student and you come into my group and I get you to work nine months on, on a survey, it's, you know, it's, it's super boring. Um, but I mean, he went through it, thankfully. Uh, instead of coding, you know, we did this user survey where we asked 90 people, uh, it was an online survey. There were 90 sort of participants online, so 89, I think, participants online survey. Plus, I think we talked to maybe 15 users to really understand what their challenges were. And I think a lot of the people work actually coming from um, Neo4j uh, or other uh, graph database management systems, although we wanted to do the survey a bit more broader by talking to users of Giraffe and NetworkX and, and other sort of graph, popular graph libraries as well. But I think many of the people were essentially coming from Neo4j because it had the biggest user base. And we asked them, what are your problems? And they really told us scalability is a big problem in the field. Uh, so, so that's how we positioned our research back in the day in, around 2017. Let's work on scalability, how to make essentially graph querying more scalable, graph storage more sca scalable. Uh, Amin made, led, really led the project. Amin Medby is a, my, 
one of my PhD students who's graduating this year. He was the main essentially researcher on, on, on the system. And, you know, so a lot of those ideas actually are now getting into Kuzu and a lot of those that work was either in storage or query processing. So maybe in terms of those two, uh, we have the most sort of state of, we have integrated most of the state of our techniques that we know. So what are those? So in the query processor, we, Kuzu is a factorized query processor. Um, which means that the intermediate results are represented not as flat tuples, but as uh, unions of Cartesian products. And, uh, and I can get into this. It implements some of these novel techniques, joint techniques for many-to-many -many joints, for growing joints, which is a core problem in, in, in graph querying. Um, and it then integrates these very well-known and adopted, very well-understood techniques like... Um, it's vectorized uh, in the sense that columnar DBMS relational systems use the term. So it means that instead of passing single tuple between operators in, in your query plans, you pass, uh, we pass 2048 tuples are being passed. And that's the term uh, vectorization in the context of query processing. So it's a vectorized query processor and it does morsel driven parallelism, which is technique that came i think maybe introduced in in hyper i'm not sure but it was a thomas neumann paper and so and that db adopted to we adopted it's a way of paralyzing a, a single query plan instead of paralyzing multiple queries running uh, in parallel so which basically it's a very simple idea it just means that if there is a pipeline suppose you need to scan and filter something right so it's just, let's take something very simple you need to find all your nodes that have an age greater than 50 and there's maybe, you know, a million nodes. Morselization just means that you partition the, the amount of data from disk that needs to be scanned and different threads are competing to get different morsels, essentially partitions of things, and they run different pipelines and they coordinate at where the pipelines end. Um, so that's uh, the way we parallelize, uh, uh, parallelize uh, queries. So those are essentially maybe the core sort of ingredients to the query processor. Uh, storage is it's a, a columnar design, but it's it's graph optimized. Um, so why why is it columnar? Uh, the motivation for this, is, and this is essentially our position uh, as a as a research group, um, have from having talked to a lot of people who use graph database management systems. Uh, a lot of the applications that graph database management systems are very good at supporting, where they add value, uh, is in uh, essentially query heavy workload. So you're looking for something very complex that requires essentially maybe finding a, a path between one node and another node, or even like just going like two, three degrees of neighborhoods around nodes to see what they're connected to. Uh, again, like classic examples are, are fraud. You know, is this a bank account? Suppose you get a financial transaction network you want to represent as a set of nodes and edges. There are account nodes. There are transfers between accounts. And you just want to know, um, is this node connected to the suspicious node from, you know, take your country you know the, the the challenge is that the graphs by their nature i mean a lot of the, one core property of the data that applications tend to use graph database for is that nodes are going to connect to many other nodes so it's, there's going to be many to many relationships so if one of your accounts is transferring on average to 100 different accounts and they transfer to 100 different accounts you're just, to, to the amount of essentially part of the database that you need to explore and search just grows uh for each hop that you do, for each join that you do. Um, and so that ends up requiring scanning and sort of processing large chunks of the database. So in that sense, it's read-optimized or it, these systems need to be read-optimized or query-optimized versus 
systems that might just want to be very good at sort of updates and some, you know, you're taking lots of transactions, you want to update them. They're not really transactional. I mean, as any database management system, they need to support transactions because people will want atomicity and durability. They don't want to lose their data, but they're not supposed to offer a lot of value in that space. I think that's a mismatch. So as a design choice, many of them try to uh, optimize for this query speed uh, and um, so our storage is columnar because that's the core well i mean that's a very well understood uh, sort of uh, principle that columnar systems are much more scan friendly uh, they give you opportunities to scan less parts of the data if the queries ask for less parts of the data than row oriented systems so which means that every property that we have on nodes for example an h property gets its own sort of sets of set of this blocks or uh, or file, uh, if you will. Um, so it's 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 columnar uh, as a core principle. And in terms of storing the edges and edge properties, relationship properties, it's still a columnar system. We adopt a disk-based version of the C well-known you know CSR format. Uh, that's a very common format uh, to represent sort of graphs in uh, both in memory and we have a disk disk based version of it um, so that's also columnar i mean it's, it's actually called columnar sparse row format so it's uh, it's a columnar system you can really think of csr as a compression of two sorted columns uh, i won't get into it but it's it's another columnar uh, format and we have one choice that we made which sometimes I question actually, but uh, we, we made it because that's what we've done in Graphflow too, is that we double indexed edge properties. Uh, so which means that if you have a connection, suppose you know account A has sent money to account B and there's a property on that edge, maybe the amount of money that was sent is 500, that we stored at 500 twice, one for one of the nodes, the source, if okay. you will, one for the other Note so that if and that that's a choice that we made and I think it's especially good in a, in a disk-based system. I mean it, it increases your storage, but by a constant factor two, and you can't I mean you can't do less than that. Mm -hmm. um, and if you need to essentially read scan the incoming properties of a specific node, and in general you should always optimize for these very simple queries because they're going to be always most common. Uh, just like in any phenomena in the world, there's going to be a skew in terms of the complexity of the query and how frequently you're going to get it in, in an actual system. So for the very simple queries, pinpoint queries where you say, give me this node and all edges around it. Uh, and if you need to read incoming edges, uh, then um, you want to locate them. Like we, essentially, this gives us a way that they're all stored in the same page. So that's why we double index it. We don't double index node properties. So node properties can't, I mean, if you, you can, but you'd have to replicate hundreds of times if a node is being touched by hundred other nodes. Yeah. Um, so, so that's another thing. So we've got CSR format, we got columnar format for node properties, uh, CSR format for relationships and relationship properties. We got double indexing there. And uh, just on that for a second, yeah. why, why do you sometimes regret that decision? Well, because it's um, why do I regret this? So, so there is alternative ways. Like, I mean, I, I could get a bit technical, but there is alternative ways uh, that we could have reduced the we could reduce the storage. I think. Okay. Uh, right. I, I I don't want to say I regret it. I sometimes question it because okay. we didn't very very properly study how fast we could have been if we chose to 
have just like, and that's what's the alternative method. The alternative method is what a relational system would do. You'd have a relationship table, no particular order there, and everything is kind of uh, stored. All of the edges are stored there, and all the properties are stored uh, once. But you'd have an index uh, that essentially you need to have this index. You need to have for which node, what are its edges. Okay, so that's not. Mm storing the property though that's just storing the ids of the neighbors yeah. and maybe using that you could just store the ids of the edges as well and then do a full scan with some smart way of filtering so you don't scan the whole tables so that's an alternative way that you could store only once edge properties only once and uh you could still maybe do fine actually in graph flow which was an in-memory system we didn't double index we okay. actually did a single index but it was in memory, so you know we'd have some random reads. But because it's in memory, we didn't care too much. Mm. We never really tested that, so I was a bit more conservative when we said we're gonna do a move to not just me. Back in the day, my uh, my, my student who implemented GraphFlow uh, storage also implemented the initial version of Kuzu storage. We had this intuition that you know what, let's just double index, let's forget about this problem. Uh, but we never properly studied this, uh, and yeah. you know. That's that's why I say I sometimes still question it that, you know, could a system, could we just store it once and still be okay? Uh, we, we never did that that study, you know. One for an interesting uh, research paper in the future, right, I guess. Yeah, maybe, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> um, so that's storage. So let me just tell you just very quickly about other things. So uh, the join optimizer is a core sort of optimizer in every system where you spend a lot of time. It's a dynamic programming based optimizer. And Thomas Neumann really has done the most work in that space. So we try to get that. We have a buffer manager that's based on another, uh, right now, uh, University of Munich based paper. Uh, VM cache is the paper. Uh, so it's uh, that's that, that area is led by Victor Lace. Uh, he was at a different university and moved to the University of Munich where Thomas Neumann is. Yeah, by, by the way, if, for any of the listeners, Thomas Neumann is like the god in, in, <laughs> in, in systems, uh, in, the, in databases. That's why his name is coming up a lot. Uh, I mean, not only one god, one of the gods. Uh, so, and we do look at his work. And Victor is also at the University of Munich and he leads the, he's done most work and the best of the work, I think, in, in, in buffer management. So we read that paper. Uh, and try to integrate it into Kuzu. So we have a buffer manager based on VM cache. Let me not uh, get, get get into it, uh, but you know people can easily find uh, find that. And uh, we have a transaction manager. Um, so that's very. Uh, uh, I think his, if if one day a historian went and said what was the simplest and most simplest and correct transaction manager I, I i'm very confident it's correct but it's also very simple it's <laughs> realizable kind of by design i'm not super proud of it but you know we had to add these features in the simplest way possible i'm not proud of the way we implemented it but i'm proud of the way of how simple we were able to implement it um it's it's based on right ahead logging uh, so, you know, writes go into different sort of pages first and they're logged and during checkpointing, they're sort of copied over and uh, by design, you can only have a single writer in the system. So it's kind of optimized for bulk writes instead of sort of many concurrent writes and reads and writes can, reads and the write transaction, single write transaction can work uh, concurrently. Um, so, uh, so it is serializable in that sense. And so maybe one day we're going to, 
uh, sort of make that more optimal if there's any demand. But it's, it's again, these are choices that we made. Our engineering efforts are based on optimizing the reads and scalability instead of transactions. Uh, so yeah, so transactions, I mean, you know, in one sense, it's, 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 it's a bit naive and simple. It's correct, I think. Uh, uh, it's, you know, relatively well-tested, but it's also, we did a lot of simplifying sort of assumptions like that we only allow a single writer in the system and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So let's let's dig into a little bit more about the factorized query process because this was the focus of the side of paper, right? So right. we've been through what factorization is, but maybe you can kind of touch on the design principles that you use when designing these new join operators. And yeah, I guess just tell us more about the ones that you've got in Kuzu. Yeah. So factorization is um, again, it's a compression technique, but it's not a compression technique you use to essentially make your disk files smaller, which is how compression is usually used on systems. You know, you've got a file that stores maybe a, a, a property or a column of a table and you want to make it short because there's lots of, you want to make it small because there's lots, there's lots of repetitions and whatnot. Factorization is interesting because it's, it's actually a technique that's designed specifically for query processing for when the queries contain many to many joins, meaning that they can grow. So the, the core idea is, uh, very simple. Uh, so uh, think of like the simplest star query. You got a middle node B, you got one outgoing edge to a node A, you got another outgoing edge to C, and that's your query pattern. So this is the essentially what you would write in the match clause. And you want to find uh, essentially all incoming and outgoing neighbors of a particular node B. And suppose you get a filter on B. Um, and suppose that filter says, you know, Jack's essentially outgoing essentially transactions and incoming transactions give me jack's neighborhood basically so that's the simplest essentially uh, star query you could get now if you've got essentially 10,000 outgoing neighbors and 10,000 incoming neighbors now if you represent this output in flat format it's 10,000 times 10,000 so you know it's i think it's 100 million essentially tuples would be represented there but there is actually a very the neighborhood is actually much smaller there's only 20,000 edges there so factorization is a way of representing this output as a cartesian product instead so it's jacks nodes and data cartesian product with 1000 outgoing neighbors uh, 10,000 outgoing neighbors cartesian product with 10,000 incoming neighbors so that cartesian product is another way to represent the exactly the same 100 million tuples um, and it's essentially you know that's the way uh, factorization works that whenever possible we try to essentially represent tuples uh, sets of tuples as cartesian products in a much more compressed way and pass that between uh, operators um, so uh, so you asked about the design goals um, so one thing was just be able to implement factorization and we had a particular way of implementing this based on my PhD student Amin's work in Graphflow. It was really directly implemented in, in, in Kuzu. So we knew we wanted to essentially represent intermediate relations, not as a set of flat tuples, like maybe DuckDB does or uh, pretty much uh, any of the uh, other systems do, but in a factorized way. We also wanted to make sure we don't use index nested loop joins. So, so this is the type of operators that we in Graphflow had or Neo4j has, for example, an expand node, which is a join operator that takes a node record and expands it to its neighbors, for example. Um, so if you use that in an in-memory system, maybe that's fine. But in a disk system, if that's the type of joins that you do, that is that there's an expand operator that takes a set of tuples and for each one, it expands it. So that's what in database literature is 
the way index nested loop join operators would work. So, you know, from one side, you read the tuples from the other side, you go and scan and, and, and perform the join one tuple at a time. So for each join. So that's actually uh, not going to be robust. I mean, I, I don't say that's always bad. Actually, in the paper, there's many cases where that actually works the best in very very, very basic cases, like, you know, you want one node and you want its neighbors, expand type of join operators do well, but it's not robust when you are getting, you know, thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands tuples and you need yeah. to do that. It just degrades very quickly because it leads to, you know, again, you're, you can't really localize neighborhoods. So it, it degrades to random IOs. So we didn't want to do that. So we wanted everything to be based on hash joins which is the common kind of wisdom nowadays for doing joins, at least equality joins in, 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 in systems. Um, and we also wanted to make sure we don't, when, when possible, behave like index nested loop join. Index nested loop join has this one advantage that if, if all I want is Jack's outgoing neighbors, you know, an expand operator that just goes and takes the, you know, maybe it, it was preceded by a scan operator that gave Jack's node ID, and all it does is that, you know, just looks up in an index, the IDs of the neighbors, and then does the minimum amount of IO and maybe read only the properties of those nodes or edges. So that's actually, you know, good because if you got, you know, a 10 gigabyte file, you might just end up reading, I don't know, a few kilobytes of things, even though it's random IO, you're just reading very few parts of the database. So in those cases, index nested loop join has an advantage. Again, I don't think it's robust, but we also wanted to behave like that when the queries were very selective, uh, when we needed to join a single record or a single node record or a few node records. So those were the three goals. Uh, factorization, uh, avoid, uh, so make it hash join based, but also try to avoid uh, scanning all mm -hmm. uh, essentially files. And the reason this is a problem is that hash join always reads entire files. So by default, there's a build phase and there's a probe phase. There's no mechanism to say only read me the neighbor, you know, the neighbors of this one particular yeah. node. So those were the three design goals, and you know, we have a way of implementing this in in the system. Awesome. With so, these yeah. specialized join operators, yeah. Cool. Yeah. So you can, maybe you can tell us a little bit more about these specialized join operators. So these three are in the paper. Maybe you can just give us the intuition behind um, how they work, essentially. Yeah. So the, the so let me just t tell you the maybe the the, the core uh, sort of idea of how in a case where you are. Uh, maybe just reading Jack's neighbors, how this would work, and we would still be hash join based, but essentially achieve all the three goals. Uh, so it will be difficult to see how we get factorization because the query is too simple. So maybe let's just yeah, maybe we could expand it to to see how factorization is achieved. But suppose the only query all we have to do is read Jack's neighbors. So what will happen is that just like in any hash join, there's a build phase. Uh, which creates a hash table. And then there's going to be a probe phase, uh, which essentially scans the left side of the hash join operator uh, and uh, then does probes into this hash table that was built. So we'll do something along the lines of you're going to read Jack's record um, and we will figure out Jack's node ID. So maybe it's like seven. Okay. And then we're going to have uh, a hash table that put seven and Jack there. Okay, suppose you read only the name of Jack, maybe that's the primary key, but the internal node ID is seven. Now, all we need to know in the hash join, the hash join is going to join that record with all of its neighbors. All we need, at that point, once we create the hash table, we know that all that we need to scan are 
edges whose sources are seven. So we pass that, we do sideways, it's called sideways information passing. So we pass that information as a mask of node IDs to the left side, um, prop side. And that prop side is going to essentially use that scan, uh, sorry, use that mask to know which parts of those CSRs to read. So it will only read sevens outgoing neighbors and avoid reading the entire, uh, essentially, this file. And so we'll only be able, we'll only get a way of, re, you know, we have this mechanism so that only sevens outgoing neighbors will be read and then they will be probed and joined with uh, seven. So so that's the, essentially the core idea of how we avoid scans is that we pass these node masks to know which parts of these either relationship tables or relationship sort of indices uh, should be read or some node properties should be read. So that's the core principle uh, in these in these different uh, operators. And, you know, so, so the way, how do we get, uh, so that doesn't explain how we get factorization. The way we get factorization is that, so in CSR, in the edges are localized. So we don't essentially pass that as a, essentially a sequence of, suppose you had hundreds outgoing neighbors. We don't pass that one by one. We pass that as a sequence of hundreds nodes with seven. So it's, we just represent this as seven times those 100. So that's the tuple that's being sent. And we're going to probe on seven. So, so that seven and hundred outgoing neighbors will be joined as a single probe, not hundred probes. Uh, and uh, with a single probe, we're going to read the Jack property, which was in the uh, hash table. But so that's the way essentially what's being passed is always these Cartesian products, unless some operator needs to essentially flatten and uh, essentially break those Cartesian products. Okay, nice. So I guess the kind of question that falls out there is kind of, how how much better are these join operators then um, on on a graph workload? So maybe you could tell us a few kind of numbers, some of the experiments you ran. So we did uh, several experiments, and I'm not a big fan of system to system comparisons <laughs> because it's very difficult to get these quote unquote competitor systems in their uh, ideal performing sort of configurations. Yeah. Uh, so we do try to compare essentially what an index nested loop join configuration of Kuzu would look like with this, you know, node mask-based Kuzu. So, so, you know, one thing that we want to do is, so we're isolating, we're just trying to study the pros and cons of this passing of masks, yeah. which is an overhead, basically, you know, that's not something that index nest to loop join or hash join does, versus the benefits we get from essentially getting rid of index nest to loop joins in the system. So that's just one meaningful comparison is that Kuzu's current version versus Kuzu index nested loop join, which is essentially where we added an index nested loop join operator to the system where we do the joins using these expand-like operators. And the, the general message of those experiments is that when nodes are very selective, this overhead obviously makes the, is not worth it. It's expand type of operators uh, are going to be better performing at those very high extreme selectivity cases, you know, you know, a couple nodes are being passed, but it degrades very quickly compared to uh, essentially uh, this node mask based operators. So this will be tested both on some large um, benchmarks like LDBC plus some micro benchmarks, which are actually my favorite experiments of all systems papers are those micro benchmarks because you can really focus on a particular behavior of the system. And then, you know, uh, when the selectivity is very high, there's also an overhead 
right? So when the selectivity is ever high, you're not really getting much benefit from those passing those masks because they're not those node masks are not selective. They're not helping you avoid scans. So at those two extremes, you know, there is an overhead and you could do better. But overall, it doesn't degrade the way index and loop join operators degrade, or it's not way off. Uh, like DuckDB is, for example, which doesn't have a node mask, just does hash joins um, by, by, by forcing the system to scan all these large files. So, you know, they, you know it, so in, in comparison, it's kind of like a trade-off that you do, you know. So it, at those extreme cases, there are systems that would outperform uh, this type of processing or there are techniques. Uh, but overall, it's like, I think, a reasonable trade-off to make that your, your system and your query processing is more robust. So that's the type of yeah, that's the type of sort of evaluations that we provided in the in the paper. Fantastic. Yeah, I recommend the listener goes and checks it out as well. Um, but I, I guess on that, so I guess it's possible to kind of have to support both types of operators in the system, right, and have some sort of op, like some sort of I don't know some sort of optimizer that lets you choose specific ones yeah. based on the selectivity or whatever, right? So I mean, you can get the best of both worlds. In some, in some I agree. I agree. Yeah. It's yeah. it's doable. Actually, one of like the the, the, the one of the there's two first authors of the paper, Xiang and Godong. They're the uh, they contributed the most uh, to the paper, so they're they're listed as first sort of co first co-authors. Uh, they have been sort of arguing of when we should avoid semi masks and this node. We call it semi mass, but these node masks that I mentioned, you know, when should we just avoid this overhead completely? Because it's like if we kind of during runtime feel see that these node masks are not being selective we might maybe avoid it and do something adaptive. Uh, or or if you're smart enough, uh, your optimizer is smart enough to predict that node mask will not be selective, you could just remove it mm. uh, and replace some of those join operators with index and loop join, uh, I agree. It's a question of like, it's always an engineering question of like, do you want to invest that time? Like, or are you happy with how your sort of query process is performing? even with those overheads so it's 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 a matter of that but i do agree that yeah. uh, you know and, and in our experiments make it visible that there is there is performance that we put on the table and it's like that our trade-off is there explicit awesome stuff yeah but i'm gonna kind of roll the next two questions into one because i, I always ask kind of what are the limitations of whoever i'm interviewing whatever they're, they're working on but obviously Kuju is a very young system so i mean a lot of this it's not feature complete right so i mean there's, there's a lot right. of like a lot of road to, to run still. So I kind of want to ask you more like, where do you go next with Kuzu? Yeah, so I have several sort of uh, theses that are being written on, on, on Kuzu. One thing that we don't do, or we haven't sort of uh, invested much time, in Graphflow 2, there was no work on this. I didn't have a student to, to take this topic. It's recursive queries. So which is essentially actually an area that Graph is need to shine in. Certainly their query languages are much better for recursive queries because recursive is kind of a first class citizen. Historically too, like even in those systems in the 60s, you know, 80s, 90s, 2000s, in all those graph-based systems like RDF object-oriented system, even like the 60s uh, system like IDS, recursive application query, like applications that wanted to do recursive querying were always some of the killer apps. So, so there is a thesis being written on that. So we are essentially trying to implement uh, some new query processing techniques for like shortest paths or for variable length joins and 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 and, and things like that. Um, a second thing that I'm very interested in and i have a student who's going to start working on this and we have some ideas is how to make uh property graph database management systems more competent than rdf style 
graph data. So that's another sort of popular data model that uh, people broadly label as graph-based. Um, and I do think, you know, the property graph model, so this is like a position that I, I, I try to articulate. So I think out of all the graph-based systems, graph-based models, property graph data, you know, model is the most generic one in which you could build the most sort of uh, applications. It's most more generally ap applicable, just like relational model as a model is very generically applicable. So RDF, I don't think is, is you know, RDF is a very specific application domain. I'm not saying it's a small application domain, but it's, a, get a, it's really suitable for a specific sort of application domain as a model. But property graphs are not. Property graphs are just as relational model is very generic, or is quite generic. You could represent uh, lots of application data. And actually, this is one of the other things that we mentioned in our survey paper back in 2017, that when we asked people what kind of applications they built on these things, people just told us just all types of things. So, uh, and they could, I think, with some specialized techniques, also um, efficiently support RDF style knowledge management uh, and some techniques to uh, maybe do some owl-based reasoning and, and, and those things. So so uh, I don't think vice versa is possible. So you, I don't think you are going to manage your transactions with RDF systems or like financial transactions and frauds. I don't, I don't think that's a very good fit as a model. But I think, you know, property graph based as a model is is a good fit so i will you know there will be a thesis written on how to essentially make property graph based systems and specifically this will be done obviously on kuzu uh, more um, essentially techniques to make the system more efficient in rdf style uh, knowledge uh, management and uh, maybe some some level of uh, reasoning relay very related to that is a topic that's going to sound very boring to maybe to, to people, but I still don't know what's the right way to manage strings. We don't know this. There's actually no authoritative paper in the field on this. There's some authoritative sort of, like, there's some state-of-the-art compression techniques, but there's no authoritative paper that says, that makes an advice. If you assume this thing about your data set, you know, here's maybe the properties of the strings, their length, etc. cetera. Uh, and here's the right way to sort of store it on disk. Here's the right way to store, like manage the overflows maybe of those strings or because they are that's a variable length data type. And here's the right way to represent it in memory. So we do these things where we kind of blindly copy from Umbra or DuckDB, these things. But, uh, you know, I don't think it's very well understood. I had this, have this dream of finding a student to actually just do this investigation for, for, for about two years to sort of do this experimental study of like, here is the, all the techniques that, that's in the field of how to store things in memory, how to strings in memory, how to manage them in memory, how to process them in memory, how to store them on disk. Um, I don't know if we'll, if we'll get a chance to do that, but that's something I, I, I hope I can find a student to do on Kuzu as well. Yeah, it's probably one of those things on the face of it, it sounds quite a hard sell, but I imagine that when you get into it, it's fascinating, really interesting project once you kind of got going with it. So hopefully a listener listening to this now thinks, okay, I'm going to go work on strings for yeah. two years. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> maybe. Yeah, but I mean, so, so, so Hannes, uh, who is the CEO of DuckDB Labs and one of the main engineers there, also mentioned this actually in his keynote at Cider this year, where the paper got published. He said, like, he's very surprised that few people work on strings, despite the fact that majority of the data bases are strings. 
And like there needs to be one authoritative paper, I think, that makes this advice. Like this is how you should implement strings if this is your assumptions. And I want to see that chart of yeah. like whatever those assumptions are, you know, maybe some workload assumptions, maybe some, you know, data set assumptions. And then says, here's a good thing that we found that's that's robust and easy to implement and whatnot. Yeah. <laughs> that would be, yeah, be, really, be a really good contribution. I get, yeah, so my, these, the next sort of set of questions I have, I, I tend to sort of ask them, ask them to, to, to everyone with very different flavors. But the, the first one is the, like kind of how, how as a like software engineer, data engineer, can I kind of leverage your, your work? But I guess the answer to that is just kind of go and play with Kuzu, right? And try and integrate it into your work. Okay. See yeah. if you can kind of fit it in. So I guess yeah. the kind of the follow-up question to that would be like kind of longer term, what sort of impact do you think Kuzu can have? Um, so let me also just maybe on the previous question, yeah, I, sure, I yeah. wanted to say like those, I, I just kind of focused on the research things that are happening. Mm -hmm. There's also like, as you said, Kuzu is a, a young system. So there's a lot of engineering that's happening to add a lot of features. And we are trying, we're getting excited about uh, sort of making Kuzu more usable in the graph learning space and trying to connect more with users. So we are adding some, some features specific to these graph learning libraries. Uh, so there's going to be all those integrations that are happening. So, so for 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 that question, yeah. So I think playing around with Kuzu uh, is uh, probably the the right message for for developers or general application developers. I mean, if you're a developer of graph database management systems, they're like you know, it's like you're you're in Neo4j. So you know, for uh, for people engineers of Neo4j, I think there's some core messages that we think some of these core join techniques should get into these these systems, and there's a lot to benefit. Uh, for other application uh, developers, I think, you know, there is a lot, there's a set of application domains where really relational model and SQL is not going to be a great fit, nor are the systems that implement SQL uh, are implementing the right sort of techniques to be very performant. Uh, even like the most state-of-the-art techniques like Umbra, is not going to be really, really well in many-to-many -many joints, for example, or very, very well in recursive joints. Like recursion is something that's always a second thought in, in relational systems. It's a first-class citizen graph systems. So, you know, if you've got applications that benefit from these set of features, and there's more in my blog post, I think I've listed about uh, five, six of these application domains. Uh, I think just being sort of knowledgeable about this alternative database management systems is is going to make them uh, better engineers so because like trying to every retrofit every application to relational model is i think not a not a not a very good idea so yeah. people people should be educated more on on graph database management systems and these alternative database management uh, systems their models their query languages uh, so it's going to make them i think uh, better engineers yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah, definitely agree. Yeah, my next question, I think you touched on this a little bit earlier on when you were talking about um, the journey and Graphlow and, 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 and whatnot. But I guess on like, this journey you've been on, what's probably the most interesting thing that you've kind of learned and that was maybe quite unexpected as well? Yeah, good question. I actually, this was the question that I thought most about. I don't have a great answer to this. I asked Xiang and Godong, the two, two authors, what were their uh, sort of, what was the thing that they found most uh, sort of uh unexpected or interesting i guess like i think we learned a little bit more about ourselves so we haven't done this before so like i am trying to do this in canada so you know by following DuckTB or systems like umbra or hyper you know these are this is a specific sort of um research style uh, that's 
quite popular in Europe. So both DuckDB and 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 this Umbra hypertype of systems are being developed in academic settings in uh, in Europe. Uh, and I'm trying to, you know, my group is trying to replicate that in in Canada uh, with with Kuzu. So you know, we are doing a lot of engineering and less uh, sort of paper writing than uh, maybe normally researchers in, in academic settings do. Uh, and we are doing this for the first time. So one thing that we are noticing about ourselves is that how this this it's more a psychological thing that's we're, that I'm finding interesting. How, how often we get wrong, uh, how often our intuitions are wrong about what is important and what is not. It just becomes very difficult to judge these things in absence of a large user base. Um, like, for example, let me give you an example. We did start the project and spent a lot of effort trying to implement this uh, secondary second storage uh, sort of uh, structures in the system to store arbitrary key value properties. And you know that just slowed us a lot, and that was a lot of code. And right before we released back in November, we said, you know what, let's just see if anybody is actually interested in this or are people really structuring their graphs and we're gonna add this back on. But I mean, so that was like when the project started, you know, maybe a year and a half, two years before that, it was just, that was like nobody ever questioned that we should not have started this. And the mistake that we do often, we're, we're noticing that we're over-optimizing you get too sort of optimistic about, you know, this is going to be really important. Let's certainly do it versus, and we kind of, kind of, you know, we trade that off with simplicity and we kind of implement more than we should and we throw away. So, uh, so that's a mistake we consistently do. I think we're getting, getting it better, but that's, that was something that, you know, we started seeing more concretely by the amount of code that we're also throwing away from the system. So, that's something to keep in mind that, you know, that's a, that's a very important lesson, I think, that if you were to do this again, you know, many of the features, we just start much smaller and, and get it right to get it complete and optimized and evolve, just like text and writing papers. You know, you write mm. something, the best way to write, you know, as they say, 12 pages, write 24 pages and throw half out. <laughs> like, you know, yes. Start simple, start simple, add more and optimize it. It's just going to evolve. Uh, yeah. over o- over time don't yeah. don't yeah. overdo it uh, is is one thing we've realized ourselves it's a mistake we made uh, yeah, but is this the quote right was it premature optimizations of all evil or something like that right yeah I mean, maybe yeah. sometimes yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, like that, right? yeah. It's, it's very real yeah, yeah we've done we've done several of those for sure <laughs> cool um i guess kind of while, while we're talking about the journey as well um what were, were the things were kind of along the way? Maybe this is this is probably an example of that. But you that kind of you tried that end up failing that you think might be interesting people to know about. But maybe this is this is a good example of that anyway. So I mean, so like I could tell you sort of ideas we didn't take from Graphflow because you know we were able to write sort of good papers on them, but I I don't in the end advise people to implement them. So for example, we have this paper on A plus indices. It's, it's mm. a way of bringing materialized views into graph database management systems. Um, I mean, I think they're, they're a fine idea. And, you know, we published this in ICDE, which is a top conference and whatnot. It's a good interpretation of how materialized views could be brought into a system as, as these indices that support essentially subsets of your edges, uh, which are effectively results of some queries you may have run on the edges and we found sort of fine applications of it but it's also now very practical in the sense that it's a lot of effort and that when when we sit down and we say okay we got a budget of this much engineering we can afford should we do the a plus indices or should we do like it was a clear 
it was like clearly one of the things we said no we don't have to do this it's it's not really uh, worth it so in some sense it's if you want to interpret it it's, it's a failure in that sense uh because it doesn't offer something very practical i think it's or it's you know the amount of effort is something we can't afford uh right now so there are there are ideas like that 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 uh you know we brought in and there was a lot more work on factorization that we did that's in Amin's thesis that we are not adopting because again i i find it it's good to do research projects because without those courageous phd students doing those research you can't really distill the practical ideas i think but i don't think we really got it right yet so if you looked at the theory of factorization there is excellent ideas there like there's if so the form of factorization that we do again this is for interested students who might look at this is called f representations there's another more even compressed versions that you could keep called d representations uh it, it basically stands for factorized representations with denotations the d comes from the denotation and we don't have a way to essentially adopt that uh, again amin has something in his thesis but uh, again i'm not courageous enough to actually say because you know the, the way kuzu is trying to be is like to be a very practical system so i'm very selective on what gets in and what what doesn't get in but i i think it's it's good work that amin has done uh, but i'm i'm saying that there needs to be more work until we actually feel confident that okay the representations can now be integrated into system um yeah so i don't know if i answered your question but no, there, yeah. there are there that are tons great. of failures that's yeah. in the very that's in the very nature of research i think that a lot of the ideas uh, i think we just get wrong we publish them and then somebody else does something better i think and then hopefully some core sort of principles emerge that that we know how to do that uh, in a more practical way yeah out of interest how big is the team at the minute that's working on kuzu how many engineers so there's i think five of us i'm hmm. including myself and um three masters uh, three master students uh so the the five out of the five many of them are doing mainly engineering they're in the university and whatnot but they're mm. really less because they got their degrees so they're staying as research associates so they're less or they're postdocs so they're less worried about and they're really trying to yeah. they're, they're really they're less 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 worried about publications and they want to they're just very inspired by sort of trying to be like DuckDB and get a user base. So they're doing more engineering. Although, you know, obviously we are going to continue writing papers. Uh, yeah. Although, and then there's a couple people who are new, whom I've started training recently. Uh, and they'll write some of these theses that I, that I mentioned over the next uh, two, three years. So, but like, you know, where, however you count it, including me, maybe seven, eight are, yeah. uh, people yeah. are, uh, some of, some are very junior and not doing any engineering, just research. And some are like doing more research. Yeah. Do, do, is, is, is Kuzu kind of your whole sort of like vehicle for research or do you have other sort of non Kuzu related projects going as well? Yeah, so I we, we recently published a paper. Actually, Chunk, who is also an author on Kuzu, it was Chunk's master's thesis. Uh, Chunk kind of uh, was doing a project on open government data sets. That was a research project that I'm actually very excited about as well. So this is an area, I would say, led by Rene Miller. Uh, I mean, one of the main people in the, in the spaces is, is Rene Miller has a long history of research in open government data sets. So these are the data sets like, you know, U, UK has one, US has one, data.gov, Canada has one, opencanada.ca. These are ways governments are publishing 
uh, essentially lots of data sets about how the government runs uh, with the goal long level sort of long-term goal of transparency more uh, essentially um, democratic access to how essentially the governmental institutions are running uh, for journalists to keep an eye on sort of uh, some maybe i don't know inefficiencies and and, and major problems um, in the society and uh, it's now very usable though these data sets a lot of the people's um, it's not very easy to find them. It's not very easy to integrate them. So I have a research project. It's unfortunately gotten a bit smaller since Chunk uh, decided he'd rather work on Kuzu uh, to essentially make these datasets more usable. Um, uh, so I still have, actually, I'm currently this week writing a paper uh, on, 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 on that. So I have, uh, I have that going on. And I have a PhD student who's graduating also this year who has been doing um, work on differential data flow uh, and applications of differential data flow to graph processing. So for those of you who may not know what differential data flow is, differential data flow is one of the technologies behind materialized ink. It's a popular startup uh, in the data space. They do essentially streaming SQL uh, and to materialize your uh, uh, queries, although you know I might be wrong, so, so check what they do. But they, they're basically using a technology called timely data flow and differential data flow, which uh, Frank McSherry was very influential in popularizing. Um, so differential data flow is the most generic incremental view maintenance technique that I'm aware of. It can maintain arbitrary data flows. Uh, and uh, one of their best applications is uh, on recursive, essentially, data flows and how to maintain the outputs of recursive flows. And it relates directly to graphs because a lot of sort of graph analytics is recursive computations. Like if you want to find shortest paths, if you want to find connected components, those types of graph analytics is often represented as recursive queries. And if you represent that recursive, essentially, computation as a data flow and give it to data, this differential data flow, and your input, your graph is changing, it's going to maintain your connected components or it's going to maintain your shortest paths, which is an amazing technology. It's actually unique in the sense I don't think there is another te technology that, that's able to do this. Um, so he has been, my, my PhD student Siddhartha has been working on building essentially graph layers over differential data flow. So I have that going on on the side. Although again, these have gotten smaller because the students are leaving uh, to either move on to other things or to move to Kuzu and, and, and things like that. Yeah. Um, great. So yeah, I've got um, three more questions. Um, so the first one is I, I like to ask them people. So it's really interesting to see the divergence in answers I get for it. So it's and I'm sure you'll have a totally like new perspective on it as well. So it's like, how do you go about approaching idea idea generation and then determining what to work on? And it's like, I'd love to know more about your creative process. I see. Um, I uh, I so it's a very difficult to answer question. So some of these are student driven, obviously at this point. Um, and back in the day, it was a bit advisor driven. So back in my PhD, it was a bit advisor driven. So a lot of the very productive work that I did actually back in PhD came from Jeff Allman. Uh, Jeff is a Turing Award winner uh, for all those. I'm sure people have read Jeff's, Jeff's book. So Jeff kind of, I did uh, a lot of work with Jeff during PhD, some theoretical work. And they were really driven by Jeff and photo of Freddie back then. He, she was a collaborator of Jeff. Um, so back then it was driven by that and they would give me specific problems. They would be very well defined and I'd 
work on that. So that was that was the style. Now some of the problems are also reverse, where some students are gonna bring ideas. Um, but so often I work the way the, the way I work nowadays is I I started very very naive simple things. I implement. I make sure that the most naive versions of things get implemented. So like. Uh, I'll pose a problem like, you know, how should shortest paths be implemented, which is an ongoing project right now. Uh, what can we do in that space? And and the first thing that we're going to do is we will do the most basic ways of implementing this. And frankly, most of my best ideas come when I implement those things or I see my students implement those things and I look at the queries. Uh, I find it difficult to come up with very good systems research ideas by just, I can come up with high level directions but then in the end, I can't often predict what the papers are going to be about beforehand. And that comes only when we implement something. Uh, and then we see, okay, these are the challenges in the implementation. So I highly advise all of my students right now, and this is the sort of style that I've come to adopt in the last three, four years. It's extremely uh, sort of code driven. Everybody needs to write a lot of code. I think that's good for training as well. And everybody works, everybody needs to work in the context of a system. So one thing that I'm very against is publishing ideas that are not implemented in serious systems, because they're kind of destined to be, I think, out of touch with the reality of how things get integrated into a system, which means they're going to be dismissed. Um, so everything needs to be implemented in a serious system. Like, like Kuzu at this point is becoming quite serious that if you do research on Kuzu, you will get to interact with a lot of components of the system or you need to take, like I'm advising a PhD student, not not really advising, but I'm talking to a PhD student who works on Neo4j at University of Waterloo. And, you know, she does work inside Neo4j, which is good. I mean, that's the style of, I think, research should be done. And when you do that, I think, do you get uh, good practical ideas? Now that has one risk, which is that when you do that, your ideas are also more humble because you're kind of highly limited by what can be done versus if you were to kind of feel freer and do something on the site on your own scratch code. Um, so those papers are more easily rejected. So I, I do get a lot of rejections. My students and I know a lot of the work that we do gets uh, quite a bit of uh, rejection, unfortunately, because some of the ideas end up more like you know here is some sort of core engineering principle but they don't it's makes it, it looks a bit it, it's a bit hard hard to make them look fancy uh from a research perspective um but that's the style a style that i work i think yeah so write the code and see what doesn't work and then after enough failures good ideas come i think and they always come by the way so yeah no need no need, no need to worry about that the, some idea always comes on that you can publish i think Awesome. Yeah, that's another great answer to add to my collection of answers for that for that question. Great stuff. Um, cool. So just two more questions now. So the, the first one is, um, what do you think is the biggest challenge facing us now in, in database research? Maybe specifically, um, we can focus this towards like graph data management. And there was a recent um, debate on graph database publishes, published in the register. I'd like to get your take on yeah. that as well, if yeah. possible. Uh, actually, I, I didn't read them. Because uh, I find those things a bit distracting, yeah, and uh, yeah. uh, so I some of those are more around personalities than I think, uh, or or some companies and companies have essentially energies around them. So I actually I, I genuinely didn't did not read them, uh, although 
Um, although I know the general topic that was discussed, and I obviously have my position. So, like anybody, I think who claims graph databases will take over relational systems is way off in their predictions. I don't think that will happen. Uh, I think you got to be. I mean, the relational market is humongous and very well established, and I don't think you know people are gonna switch to graph technology for tons of applications that they will so that's not gonna happen but anybody also says graph databases are going away or i'll think way off as well i don't think they're going and actually as i have tried to say this style the one that neo4j kind of um brought uh, the, the data model and the cipher like sort of query languages are going to stay and i think they're actually going they're, they're likely to be the most successful of every wave that has come so far um and there's more buzz around them too but I, I don't see them going away like xml databases that i think they're they're here to stay i think they've got a relatively healthy sort of application base and then and, and more can be done in the graph state. i mean one reason that convinces me of this is that there's really no other data model other than a graph and tables that is very generic to represent application data and there will always be appeals to choose one over the other uh, and some of this is also just social so, you know sociological question that people just prefer thinking of certain sort of uh, records as as nodes and versus tables so uh, so they've done a good job i think property graph model is a, is a good model so I, I do see it remaining for uh, for around i mean so that's also way off uh, but, uh, but obviously i don't think graph databases are going to take over relational systems or something that's just uh, that's also way off i think that that, that <laughs> yeah. doesn't demonstrate i think a good understanding of the the, the, the core sort of uh, power around uh, relational uh, relational systems but graph databases are here they're going to get better the market is going to grow healthily i think you know there will always be uh, many applications that use those systems uh what is a challenge in 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 in, in databases um so i mean so I'm, I'm not i don't see myself as a visionary frankly so uh so i don't i can't sort of foresee what kind of big problems people are going to uh to work on but one thing that i am uh, kind of in, inspired about like this i'm just i'm just putting it out there so that maybe some phd students who might run into this podcast uh might when i get curious about is there has been an ideal way back uh actually stemmed from ai artificial intelligence from very early days historically of building information systems that can do deductions um and you know that has its own niche sort of communities with like uh, automatic proofs and things like that where it connected very well with the database community back in the day. I don't think the communities talk as much, but uh, these logic-based systems like Datalog um, is essentially a part of first-order logic that is really that really captures the relational uh, calculus. Um, but it's it's a very limited part of first-order logic, and the logic-based sort of AI community, the symbolic AI community, has done a lot of work on finding. Um, essentially algorithms that can do deduction so let me give you an example actually this is an example i, I wrote a blog post on this that will appear at sigmot records uh but i think six months from now for some reason they said it would appear in sigmot but here's, here's an example that if you read a book on those sort of core ai topics of knowledge representation uh and and sort of applications of first order logic uh, to essentially knowledge representation and deductions and whatnot uh, 
So one example that they, they will give is, uh, think of a database, a table of uh, essentially items, some, some elements, maybe some balls, and they have colors. Um, so maybe the colors are red or black. And, and then there are some nulls. There's some balls whose colors are not known, but there's a constraint that says that every ball has to, which you can do in first order logic, uh, which you, you can do in some logic-based uh, systems as well, they, they, database systems, I think as well, that there's a, there's a constraint that every ball has to be blue or black, right? So we just fit relational algebra. And, and my question is that how many, what is the maximum number? What's the, what's the color? of the balls, what's the maximum number of reds or blacks? Okay, so you know, out of the all buckets that you could have in terms of colors, what's the maximum number? And suppose again, there's three records, one is blue, one is red, one is null, but there is a constraint that colors are either blue or black. Now the answer is two, but no relational system can compute this, right? Because no relational system is going to be, like you can't, like you need something, some other algorithms to do this deduction and use the constraint and be smart that the maximum has to be, like you need to do a little bit of a proof there. Right? You need to say that, okay, there's two cases, either this null is red or this null is black. Let's do the query. When it's red, you get number two, because now there are two reds. Now, if it's blue, uh, if it's, sorry, if it's black, you get two as well. So the maximum has to be two. So that's the correct answer. And obviously humans, we can answer this very quickly, but no information system right now, no database system will do this because we're really restricted to, very small part of first order logic. I think a good thing to think nowadays is to see what, like, first of all, I don't even know how, how well motivated it is with this current AI sort of applications, but it's it's an ideal, I think that's, uh, that will, that's important to remember as people think about reasoning, as people think about sort of what can we do to extend AI applications with some logic-based deductions because people are talking about neuro-symbolic AI. Um, and I don't fully understand, again, the applications to see if this sort of gut feeling that I have that this might be a good topic to look at is important. But at least as an ideal, it has existed for over 50 years maybe of how can we build more intelligent database, database management systems by extending the part of sort of first order logic that we capture. So, you know, if somebody does the work of seeing if there are applications of this, that more deductions could be good for certain applications, I think it's a good time to start. And maybe 10 years from now, those systems might be really useful because this logic AI, logic community has done a lot of work to find a lot of algorithms. And it's the right time to think about how many of those can actually be put back into a database management system, make, make practical and whatnot. So, uh, no, that's a that's an area that I think is is important. Then there is some classic areas like nowadays heterogeneous computing, GPUs, DPUs. How do we bring those kind of hardware into database techniques? Those are clearly very timely to do. I think to write PhD theses on too. Uh, so yeah, those two immediately come to my mind. About if I were to be a PhD student now, I'd explore those type of things. And 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 you know, uh, it's as usual as every decade. It's very exciting. There's tons of things to work on. Yeah, well, there you go, listener. You've been told those are the things you need to go work on. <laughs> well, uh, I see. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> it's at least good to explore, I think. It's, it's, it's yeah, definitely. So yeah. really interesting directions. They're cool. Um, so um, it's time for the, the last the last word now. So what's the one thing you want the listener to take away from, from your work on Kuzu and from this podcast today? Um, 
So uh, I'd like them to first of first of all understand that you know Kuzu uh, is uh, being developed seriously. So I'd like to see pe more people use Kuzu. You get our sort of first set of users who are trying and playing around with the system, which is exciting to see. Uh, but it is a system uh, that aims to be highly scalable and and sort of fast on on graph queries. These you know join heavy queries uh, when you need to find connections between nodes and um, you know it is adopting the usability style of DuckDB so you can think of it in one sentence as DuckDB for graphs so that's one thing to uh, to take away and you know uh, so, so that's about because did you want me, want me to comment about something else that that's if yeah. you wanted to and the other, yeah, and the other yeah. thing is I, I I do think you know Educating yourself a bit more on other data models is going to help you. Uh, you know, knowing more about RDF, knowing more about property graph database management in general is healthy. And I think, um, you know, for anybody who's teaching courses on database management, I think I do this all the time, uh, spend a couple lectures on these things. I think we need to educate people more on these alternative models that go beyond the alternative data models and sort of variants of SQL like Cypher and uh, Sparkle and those languages are they're, they're easy to pick up and it's good to know because uh, you know you want to be able to use your skills on those technologies easily I think it's going to make people uh, better engineers um, so that's another thing that I, I, I want to advocate very very strongly for. Fantastic well that's a great a great thing to end it on so yeah, we'll end it there. Thanks so much, Sam. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. And um, if the listener is interested in knowing out more about all of Sammy's work and Kuzu, we'll put all the links to everything and all the blog posts and whatnot in the show notes. And if you enjoy the show, please consider supporting the podcast through Buy Me A Coffee. And we will see you all next time for some more awesome computer science research. <laughs>